Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Uh, joining me on the phone, as always, it is uh, connoisseur de la musique, Alan Niven. You're a connoisseur. How are you? I am very, very well. Connoisseur sounds a little bit posh for me. I just like rock and roll, don't I? Well, you know, hey, once a rocker, always a rocker. Which, which, which is a good uh, way to bring us to our uh, to our guest today. It is Cowboy. Mock Bell from the Joe Perry Project, and he has a new book out called Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, and this one's kind of interesting. Um, when Joe called him up to join the band, he started a diary, which, oh, sorry, in, in 2021, we call that a journal. He was journaling, <clears throat> a diary, and he wrote down, you know, uh, all this stuff, Joe said this, Joe did that, we went here, we did this rehearsal, that rehearsal, we played this town, that town. And he kept this diary every single day until Joe said, hey, guess what? I'm rejoining Aerosmith, gotta go, see you later, bye. And the book stops. And it, it's it's a fascinating story. It, you know, you can go out over to... Uh, oncearocker.com to pick it up on Amazon they have it but they also have the paperback the audiobook the ebook uh, once a rocker always a rocker by cowboy mock bell but let me ask you this did you keep a diary of what was going on back in your day cuz i'd love to read the guns and roses chapters of course i didn't i was not going to accumulate incriminating evidence for the benefit of those who might want to use it later but let's go and find out the incriminating evidence on Joe Perry. Yeah, and there is some. So here is uh, the one and only Cowboy Mock Bell. We are speaking with uh, the one and only uh, Cowboy Mock Bell. You might know him from his days with Joe Perry and the Joe Perry Project. He has got a book, a fascinating, fascinating book called Wants a Rocker, Always a Rocker. And yes, uh, that was, of course, the name of uh, Joe Perry Project's third album, which, of course, featured Cowboy. Uh, bonjour, Mr. Cowboy, as we say in Montreal. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me aboard, uh, Mitch. Really excited to be on the show. It's uh, it's funny the way, uh, just with the name Cowboy, it's just that we have a real popular real estate agent around where I live who I think is just called Cowboy Boyd. And so <laughs> I'm seeing his, his signs in my head as we're talking. But uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. It's Cowboy Boyd. And, of course, it's all in French. But let's talk about this because, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Aerosmith fan. And I remember very, very specifically. Now, you, of course, you weren't in the band here on the first record. But I was down in New York City uh, with my mom. We had gone out to see um, the Eric, Eric Carr play with the Kiss at the Palladium. First showed in July of 1980. And I went to whatever record store... And I bought Let the Music Do the Talking on Vinyl. And before I went to see the Eric Carr debut performance with Kiss, I sat at this person's uh, apartment and listened to the vinyl of Joe Perry. And of course, a couple of years later, you joined the band. So talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, the band goes through two or three singers right at the beginning. How did they get to you? You know, Was it auditions? Were you hanging around? Were you a buddy? How does Joe get to meet Cowboy? Yeah, that's a good question, Mitch, because Joe is not, uh, he's a lot of things, but he's not really a social butterfly, or at least he certainly wasn't back 
in that stage of the game. Um, yeah, and, and his band, the lead singer, was like a revolving door situation. You know, he had this that great first album, and Ralph just hit it so well, as you remember on the record. But I don't know, uh, different physical or mental problems. Uh, Ralph wasn't really able to stay as a touring member of the band for very long at all. So, um, And he passed uh, away Joe, in 2014. Yeah, sadly. What a voice, you know. He, hmm? he went on to, to uh, work with Kim Simmons and Savoy Brown after the oh, wow. project. Um, but, you know, Charlie Farron was a terrific singer in a, in a band, uh, Balloon, that was playing the New England area and, you know, New York going up to Canada, doing the same thing that my band Thunder Train was doing. I'd been the lead singer with Thunder Train for about five years. We had, you know, names in our area. And so Charlie did do an audition to get his spot as the lead, second lead singer on the second I've Got the Rock and Rolls Again album. Um, and, you know, that was a great album and they toured uh, did a lot of really big big shows uh, in that era of the project because they were managed by Don Law, who was um, he's like a huge concert promoter. Now now he's with uh, uh, Live Nation, like the CEO of that. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Everybody's with Live Nation. They bought everything. Yeah. Luckily, when I was with Joe, it was long before all that stuff happened. It was much more of a, the Wild West of rock and roll, um, the days of once a rocker, always a rocker. Anyway, Charlie was terrific, and he was so terrific that he figured he could get his own record deal and do his own thing. So he didn't last very long in the project either. So that's how I ended up. It was actually um, it was through the management that picked up Joe Everything kind of fell apart for Joe Perry. Uh, Charlie Farron left the band along with David Hull, the bass player from the yep. first two albums. Here, here's a fun fact. Uh, I actually saw Aerosmith play with David Hull somewhere late 90s, early 2000s, because Tom Hamilton missed a show and David stood in. That's right. Yep. Uh, you know, And I have pictures. Tom, you know, had a battle with health issues, and yes, David is the man. <laughs> he can come in and do that job, and has done it a few times. Anyway, David and Charlie left. Um, Don Law dropped, just kind of let uh, the project go because there wasn't much left of the project. It was just Joe and his drummer, Ronnie Stewart, and uh, handed, up, handed Joe off to this unknown guy called Tim Collins, uh, a manager who had some smaller acts here yeah. in Boston. Then now, he had I Aerosmith, knew, which which is well, not bad. Yeah, later on. Yep. Um, but this is all Pre. early before we would ever know that any of that would ever happen. So Tim was a little bit younger than me, um, knew me from Thunder Train, and uh, my mentor, uh, who who helped me uh, uh, immensely with Thunder Train, was a guy named Earthquake Morton. Now, Earthquake was a big performer here, also in New England, but he switched to the management and business side of the business. And when Tim inherited the Joe Perry project with no singer, he said, what the heck are we going to do? And Earthquake Morton looked at him and said, mock Bell. And Tim said, book him. So Earthquake got me on the phone, and 
it was a, it, it actually was a little bit of um I, I was scared not scared not scared uh, to to take the job although it was huge uh shoes to fill um it was more i was 29 years old i just come through five real rough years on the road being that close to you know being the next household name rock star i thought and getting doors slammed in my face and you know i'd i'd had it mitch i was like i'm going to reform myself as a regular tax paying USA citizen and I'm not going to be a rock rock and roll singer anymore and that's where my head was at at the moment when the phone rang and they said hey you want to be the lead singer of Joe Perry project um that's kind of it's actually how my book opens with that phone call yeah um well, okay let me get, was, let me get into this book real quick here because uh, and, and and we'll we'll fill in the details of the story but what I find interesting is that it's an actual diary. I mean, you, you sat there and you wrote uh, what was going on on what day and what your thoughts were. Uh, talk to me about that. When you joined the Perry Project or the Joe Perry Project and went off with them, did you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to write down what's happening because, I, I don't know, just to have a, my own memory of it? Or were you always somebody who held a diary and always did journaling and stuff? And, what was sort of that inspiration where you went, dude? I'm writing this shit down. Couple, couple things together. Yes, I did have experience writing journals, and I'm, you know, I'm a lead singer songwriter, so you know, I, I knew how to hold a pen. But what happened was when I showed up to audition for Joe, also in that room was Brad Whitford, who had quit Aerosmith a year earlier. Uh, of course, Brad Whitford being the other guitar superhero from Aerosmith. Uh, so I'm walking in there along with Danny Hargrove, the, the brand new bass player who they just hired the day before me. And I walk in and there's a microphone set up between Brad Whitford and Joe Perry. And I'm going to, you know, sing same old song and dance and, and uh, let the music do the talking and six other songs. Um, that all sounds great and scary, <laughs> but what was also happening was Joe, after what had happened with his band and also personal things going on in his life with his wife, Alyssa, at the time, he was in obviously bad physical and mental shape. And well, let me, let me just I take thought, you up on that for a second, because I'm a big fan and, yeah. and I know the Aerosmith thing. And in the 80s, the late 80s, uh, from from done with mirrors onwards, I, I was my entire life was Aerosmith just for that like four year, five year period. And the story was that when we got to done with mirrors, you know, Joe Perry was essentially living on a park bench and he had lost everything. All, all the, all the cocaine and all that stuff had caught up to him. And eventually that's why they decided to do a, the reunion because it was just like, listen, this guy's going to be homeless. Otherwise, uh, how, how, accurate was that depiction of Joe is down and out. Here's the guy from Aerosmith, Walk This Way, Sweet Emotion, Rocks from the 70s, to being the guy that is, that rumors were was living on a park bench. Uh, pretty damn accurate, Mitch. Um, it's one of the reasons we worked like hell. They kept us out there and could put us in the Red Roof Inn, so we had a place to stay. I had a girlfriend, luckily. Uh, Joe... Uh, didn't always have a girlfriend. And yeah, 
I won't say he was on the park bench in the Boston Common, but he was like crashed out at WBCN, the the, the radio station, like in a, in a chair in the corner of the waiting room. You know, people knew him there because they played his records every hour. But here's poor homeless Joe, you know, just crashed out. And, you know, he was definitely couch surfing and and in a really bad way. Um, that's what the whole my book is a lot. A lot of that is going on at the same time that we're trying to get a record deal. We went we scraped for a year and a half with no record deal out playing shows with this this band nobody knew who we were um and uh no deal uh, uh untested management um very uh hand-to-mouth existence no money you know we did it all out of a little van just like we just like going back to high school days like going back to aerosmith the first time i saw them back in 71 in that uh van that you see on the tv show with the uh the guy painted on the side of it we didn't have a guy painted on the side of our van, but otherwise you couldn't afford the paint deal. job. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I so was you going to say, so you jump into this Dodge van, right? It's yeah. A, <laughs> and you, and you now, um, <coughs> you know, you, let me ask you this because you you join him, you know, uh, Tim Collins, who ended up feuding with Aerosmith after many years. He tells you, okay, you got to you got to join, and so on and so forth. Do you look at this and say, wow, it's Joe Perry of Aerosmith and have some kind of starstruck moment like, wow, I'm with the guy who fucking played on rocks? Or do you look at him and go, wow, what a desperate, sad character. I mean, look at him. He's I'm going to help him get his life back. I'm going to build this machine with him. How, how, what were sort of your impressions of him? Or like he's the big superstar or wow, this guy's going to need my help. Well, I got to admit, I was always starstruck by Joe Perry at his worst. Uh, I saw him the first time I saw him when I was 17 or 18 playing at the teen center. I knew that I was seeing something totally outside of anything that I'd ever seen on a local teen center type stage. You know, I had seen, you know, I'm a little older than you. I saw Hendrix, you know, I saw Jeff Beck with the Jeff Beck group. I saw these guys, but who, blew my socks off not but, too many but i did see some of these guys but and i then, saw a kiss which really yeah, really. i know you saw a kiss really? i mean when you were like 13 Jeff Beck or kiss come on yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but no 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 it's all it doesn't matter who it is when no, you're 13 or 14 or whatever that age is you know those bands have a joe definitely uh made his mark on me so but but also i knew that i had even though I was unknown and not the greatest uh, uh, rock star to ever come down, the, I did know that I could write lyrics, I could work fast, I could work efficient, and I immediately, and Joe, even at his worst, was still scratching out killer guitar riffs like the Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker riff, which he was playing the first time I walked into the rehearsal room, and which I immediately started to hang lyrics on so that I could have us, you know, I wanted to write a song with Joe Perry. I didn't know if I'd be in the band for a week. I didn't know if Joe would survive for a week at that point. So that was another reason I wanted to start writing in a journal. Because, I mean, he looked like he was one foot in the grave when I joined the band, to tell you the truth. And I said, you know, if Joe croaks in a month, I want to have, <laughs> have this written down so I can remember that moment. Now, the month 
turned into more months, and then it turned into years. And then, you know, I, I was with the band for um, almost two and a half years until Joe quit the band to go back with Aerosmith and broke everybody's heart in the band because, you know, we we put it back together from uh, from shambles into a, a pretty good rocking outfit from anybody yeah. that saw it back in those days will tell you. Uh, I don't know if it was all captured on vinyl, but um, we were a rocking show, and uh, we, we got around, and it was uh, it was a uh, most incredible experience. Here I am, however, you know, decades later, and I still haven't gotten over it. I really haven't. It was uh, every hour and every day with Joe and that band. It was like. All of, it was like a pinnacle, uh, so many pinnacles that, you know, Danny Hargrove, the bass player, and I spent years afterwards just staring at the wall trying to figure out what the hell just happened to us and, and sort it out and go back and laugh and enjoy so many of those highs because we didn't have a chance to laugh and enjoy them at the moment because the next curve in the roller coaster was coming right at you. You, you couldn't even... You finished the scream from the last one, and you had another scream coming up. <laughs> it was great. Oh, oh, spectacular time! Sorry, let me let me let me just quickly talk to you about uh, you know when we get to to done with mirrors and and unfortunately done with with your band. Um, what was that like? Because you are building this thing; it, it is starting to take a little bit more space. It's getting a little bit of radio attention. Fans are coming out to the shows. Was it something very abrupt where, hey, because, you know, on May 12th, 1984, it's the last entry in, in your in your diary. Did, do you, um, did you have a sense that this was coming? Like, did you see Tim Collins and other people doing stuff backstage going, why are they whispering? Or was it just like, hey, look, uh, we're done. Well, yes, but no. Here's a weird one. We were out on the road on the Always a Rocker tour. We released finally released the record after over a year uh we got a deal we put out the record we go out and we do the whatever it was 50 city tour and we make it out to la and in and i mean the week before i'd been you know at on the radio stations and and shaking the hands with the mc now we're on mca records that's who picked us up um and all of a sudden our road manager pulls up to this house and we're on the side of the road and up in the hills of hollywood and Joe goes in, where's he going? Oh, that's Shep, Gor- Shep Gordon's house. He's going to go in and have a meeting with Alice Cooper. And, you know, we're all out in the van, the rest of the band, and we're just hanging around, and the minutes tick by, and then an hour ticks by. And finally Joe comes back out, and, you know, nobody really says anything, but we're thinking that's kind of interesting, what's going on? And then when we did get back home from that tour, the rumor was that Joe was going to, put together a band to back up Alice Cooper, who was also, you know, a lot of the rock stars were on the sidings in the early 80s. Yeah, Cheap you Trick know, was, Kiss about, was, Alice Cooper were, yeah, they all were. Yeah. Led Zeppelin broke up, and yep. yeah, just ended up taking yeah, but, off their Hold on a second. What, what I find funny is, is you roll up to Shep Gordon's house, and he just, yeah. it's like, yeah, well, we can't have those guys in here. They're not, they're not important. <laughs> I mean, was that really the vibe? I mean, or, or... Um, I mean, because that's, that's kind of funny. It's like, yeah, you can come in, but those, no, they can't, not the band. No. That's <laughs> you funny. know, this was, that was a funny thing about the Joe Perry project. 
most of the time it felt like a band, like, you know, you and me and our two guys, friends, you know, we put together a band and, and we kind of all have a say or whatever. Um, then that would abruptly change at certain times. It was very obvious that this is the Joe Perry project and you guys are just the, who knows who the hell you are. Uh, you guys could stay out in the van. Um, it didn't happen that often, but it would definitely happen where, uh, suddenly, uh, I mean, uh, our bass player who, who's African-American used to turn to me and say, what am I black? Because we felt like we were just like being overlooked. Um, Joe, um, we came back to Boston and then this rumor was out that Joe was going to go on the road with Alice. Now Hargrove, my bass player and I both knew that we had a bunch of dates already booked for spring for the project. And we figured, well, you know, maybe Joe will go out and do a thing with Alice, make some bread, you know, how long will it last? You know, 16 dates or something, who knows? Um, at the same time, ever from the minute I joined the band, and from years before that, when Joe left Aerosmith, of course, everybody in the rock community had been whispering, Joe's going to get back with Aerosmith. Steven needs Joe. You just watch. They'll be back together soon. This had always been going on. But, of course, I had to tune that out. Of course. I had to... Uh, By the way, you know, what, I'm the... was there any <laughs> chance that Joe was going to be Alice Cooper's guitarist? Because Alice Cooper, for a period in the 80s up until 86 or so like 82 to 86 had you know sort of de facto retired or de facto been out of the scene so so but this was really an opening slot it was not hey joe's going to be alice's guitarist no it was yeah it was it was presented it wasn't um joe is going to join the alice cooper band it was presented as it's going to be the joe perry band with Alice Cooper as lead singer. Oh, okay, you know, okay. kind of like the kind of like the Hollywood vampires except they were going to trade off the superstars names of course. Oh, oh, oh um, time out, time out, time out. So 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 Joe would have been playing for Alice then. Alice would have been singing in front of yeah. the Joe Oh. He, yeah. Oh, yeah, I assume you know Joe would have learned, you know, under my wheels and some other Alice tunes and Alice might have learned Dang. walk this way or something and they'd I, go I'm kind of sad would... that didn't happen. <laughs> I know it would have been cool, and we were fine with that. We figured it was going to be a one-off thing um, that Joe would do, and then come back to the project. And in fact, you know, right after the Always a Rocker tour, Joe did uh, leave to go. It's in I talk about it in the book because Joe's with me before and after, telling me how it went. Um, he writes some songs with Alice, and uh, you know, he's, they work for a few days. Then he comes back, and then boop, we're back out on the road. We were actually up in Canada doing a short uh, whirlwind Canadian tour. Everything was fine. We get back, and that's when I got called into the office. Usually they were going to yell at me when they called me into the office. Uh, but I was, you know, I th figured, well, you know, maybe it's good news. Maybe MCA's put, you know, ready to, for us to do the second album. <laughs> MCA or, you know, has no been... idea what to do with a rock band, by the way. That is like the worst <laughs> possible label for a rock band. You know, oh God. when you're when your rock band signs to MCA, that's when you should just go on a farewell tour. Just saying. You know, they just they they ended up with a lot of when we were on the label. I, I agree with you. They sure didn't know what to do with us and what no. they did with us. They fired us the day we began in the studio, and we had to fight to get back onto the label. We were dropped before we even recorded the record. But at that moment, you know, they had Leonard Skinner, they had the Who, they had Tom Petty, not. 
none of those acts had started with MCA though. They'd all, you know, become famous with other labels and then they ended up on the mega universal MCA thing. We, on the other hand, were, you know, trying to develop a new act and it wasn't good. Anyway, I was I was hoping that we was either news, good news about the album or maybe we're going off to Japan to do a tour. Instead, I get up into Tim's office and there's Joe Pett, our drummer, Danny Hargrove, the bass player, who I didn't expect to see there. Tim sat us down and told us what was going to go down. And man, that was bad. Um, I mean, we. I think I think maybe the other guys expected it. But like I said, I'd I'd been wearing the blinders really tight, and all I was thinking about was writing new material, and up and up, and what we were going to do next. And hearing that Joe was leaving the the band uh, was incredibly crushing. Um, yeah, I can imagine. And now, 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 just quickly talk to me a little bit about Tim Collins because he he gets Aerosmith into whatever drug rehab, alcohol, anonymous, whatever whatever program it was and he rules that band with an iron fist through the permanent vacation and, and years after and then of course eventually the, the story ends with Aerosmith going hey get the fuck away from us and it all falls apart was he showing those tendencies of being sort of a I don't want to say a dictator but just a an iron fist ruler with these guys and and reeling Joe in and 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 I would suggest that he probably was very good for Joe because he did straighten him out. He did straighten out Aerosmith, and they are something in 2020, probably in in a large part because of Tim Collins's efforts. Um, how did you see Tim? Was he a, well, is he a good guy or a bad guy in the story? He's he's a good guy in my story. I he was an odd guy, um, and I did see he did. We didn't have enough money. Uh, to to all go off to Malibu to some dry out place when I was in the project we didn't have enough money for uh, you know a Fanta orange soda we but um, what did happen was Tim would suddenly get a new thing oh sensory deprivation tanks I'm sending you and Joe to the sensory deprivation tank place they're going to stick you in a saline bath of water and close the lid in this tub and you guys are going to float around for an hour and it's going to, you know, create some kind of a mental miracle. <laughs> so we'd go and float around in the tub. And then a few weeks later, Oh, I've signed you guys up. You're going to this gym, uh, to work on the Nautilus stuff, which was kind of a newer thing back then going to a gym and working on machines. Uh, it's going to clear your heads and, and prepare you for, you know, your next musical miracle. Um, so, so Tim kind of, you know, would, get these bugs in his ear and then he'd use us as guinea pigs and you know as you read in the uh walk this way book and, and joe's book the, that as the millions came rolling in with aerosmith you know they they were being sent off to these different cure-all places um by tim and you know it, it did become kind of I don't know if you ever read any of the stuff like with Brian Wilson and his from the Beach Boys and his doctor Maury, who kind of took control of Brian Wilson and and. Uh, but but to be fair, Aerosmith was out of control. If you look at what they were doing in seventy seven, seventy eight, seventy nine, that led to the dissolution of the band. They were out of control. I mean, I don't want to say they were children, but no. they but they. 
they were out yeah. of control and and you need somebody and you know there there's you know kiss with Paul Stanley they had a he had a therapist that did stuff with him and Brian Wilson and everybody likes to blame these people but they sort of put the train back on the tracks in all the cases so he sure he sure did put the put the train back on the track for Aerosmith that was so unbelievably incredible what Tim did with that band and and, oh, so you know, good guy, small, if you ask me. I mean, in yeah. terms of, oh, yeah. of business acumen and listen, Aerosmith yeah, wouldn't was, be here in 2020 without Tim Collins. That's that is my my view on yeah. it. Yeah, no, I won't. I won't argue with that. And and you'll see when you read my book, you know, I had this one little nagging thing. I owed some dental bills and, and some this and that, you know, a couple thousand dollars. It wasn't really a huge amount, but big enough for a guy in his 20s, you know, I, I was being hounded by uh, bill collectors and all this, and it was really making it hard for me to enjoy my life. And I went to Tim with my problem. This was right when I started the band. And he said, you give me their numbers. I'll take care of it. I don't know what he did. I don't know if he threatened them or if he put them on a payment plan or what the hell he did. But those people never called me again, and it was just taken care of. Now, you know, I Hey, really... listen, I've heard stories about managers like that where suddenly problems disappear. Just, <laughs> I do want to remind the folks that uh, if you need to uh, pick up the book, or if you want to pick up the book, I should say, uh, oncearocker.com. You can head over to oncearocker.com and pick up the diary. Uh let me let me let me move ahead and and start uh, wrapping up with this. But how do you sort of look back on it? Uh, my sense is that it's very favorable. It's it's one of these rollicking twenty year olds having a great time. Is it all good? I mean, yes, there's some good and bad, and some shows were better than others. And this you know promoter probably didn't pay you, and there's some shit going on. But at the end of the day, here in 2020, how do you sort of look back on your time with Joe Perry and? Does Joe still call you from time to time? Well, I look back at it with great uh, um, love and admiration, and, and uh, you know, I feel really good about it now. Um, having written the book helped me understand some of the things, because uh, when I wrote the diary, I kind of, after it ended, I put it on the shelf, and I kind of wanted to forget about it for a while because it was a it was a deep wound, having something you love just stop like that and be out of your life, and then see it, and then see Joe do so well with Aerosmith. It was very hard, you know. Joe was nice and invited me to come to concerts and things, but I'd go to a concert next to Joe and hear the roaring crowd, and. I, I was supposed to walk out on that stage with Joe and, and entertain those people like I had for all those hundreds of times. But no, the big security guy would put his arm out and stop me. And suddenly I'm just another of the peons uh, and Aerosmith's up there killing it with Ragdoll. And I'm just like, oh, I can't, I don't really dig this. I, I don't want to see my old flame with somebody else. This is hard. This is really hard. It is, you know, and, and this is going to sound completely and utterly obnoxious, uh, but when I go to shows, sometimes I'm invited by bands and sometimes they give you a pass and, and you walk around, you go to the catering and, and it's great. And there are other times where they just give you a one ticket, no plus one, and you and when you're just sitting there like in the fans, with it's not the same experience. And I know it sounds obnoxious, like, oh, you got to go to a show, shut up. 
But I get what you're saying. It's just that when you've you've tasted the the forbidden fruit and you're part of it, it's exciting. And then when you're not part of it, it's it it's I don't want to say it's depressing, but it's just like ugh, I'd rather just stay home if I'm not going to be part of the. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. And that and that leads to your other question. You know, Joe and I did keep in touch, but you know, we don't really anymore. And, and sadly, you know, for my mental and physical growth as a person, it, it's better that way. Uh, it, it's very hard f- for me not to get involved in Joe's life. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways I can hurt myself, uh, by being too close to him. Uh, if I was to get back together with him, I w- most would love to have get together with him. Like the, was the first time I ever met him where we didn't say a word to each other. I just walked into a rehearsal hall, picked up an SM58. He tuned up his Telerat guitar, and we just launched into a jam, and we made music together. Now that I would dig. I would love to make music with Joe again. But, you know, we he, he and I were never great conversationalists anyway, and uh, – so that's where it's at now. I mean, I'm still a young guy. Joe's still a young guy. Maybe something will go down later. But um, so right now, we're out of touch. I'm hoping that he reads the book or listens to the audio book that we just put out because I think he'll really. Charlie Farron's on the audio book too, and Danny's on it. Um, so he would hear those voices again and hear their take on and Earthquake, who who was our emergency road manager who showed up when our regular road manager got thrown in jail down in Florida. Um, these are all yeah. people at Joe, from Joe's past. And uh, frankly, you know, I love Joe's book, but his, his tales about the Joe Perry project are kind of scant because I don't know that he remembers that much about what was going on at that time. You know, he was still in a haze pretty heavy haze through the, the the years I was with him. Um, he was great on stage, but he was quick to get back to his, his motel room, yeah. which, which worked out great, great for me because Joe's the type of guy that draws lots of adoring girls and lots of people looking for a party. And so, Hey, Joe, Joe had to leave, but the Cowboys here, if anybody wants to party. So I, I, I uh, there was a lot of fringe benefits in, in uh, working in the band. Oh, Definitely I can imagine. Not, I can imagine. <laughs> not, no great paydays, Mitch, but, but everything everything except money. So, well, I and can there's imagine. a lot of things money and, can't buy. You know? and, and you did, of course, uh, co-write or write most of the uh, uh, Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker album. So you do have that in, a feather in the cap, too. But, yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, it must have been uh, now. Uh, remind me the other day on on Instagram, I posted about a Canadian or a band touring in Canada, and you said, "Hey, the Joe Perry Project toured with them up there at that time." Uh, who was who, yes. who? Who was that? I, I completely forget. Couple you couple you mentioned one. The great one that I love was Killer Dwarfs. Oh yeah, listen, I'm I'm friends with all those guys. They uh, you know Daryl and Russ and. Those guys are fantastic. Uh, I'll have to put you in touch with them, honestly, because I mean, yeah, I, to- I, I was I was speaking to Daryl last night, actually. So, wow, what a great great show! And, and 
you know, it was just two boats passing in the night. I think we might have done a couple of dates with them. You know, you're really busy when you're when you're working, so it's not like you get to hang out and talk about life. But uh, but what they did on stage, you know, we all just love the Killer Dwarfs. Spinning on their head. By the way, uh, uh, Russ, who who spent his career spinning on his head, uh, <laughs> unfortunately has had. Uh, neck surgery and all kinds of issues, and oh. and and his doctor told him not to spin. And, and I remember when he was telling me this, I was like, "Well, yeah, but you're you're all, you're, you know you're sixty. Of course, you shouldn't be spinning on you shouldn't be spinning on your head at forty for Christ's sake. What are you doing? Uh, what was the other one? Uh, well, there was Lee Aaron. Who, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. See, I can Lee put you in touch. We played Le Spectrum on St. Catherine Street, uh-huh. uh, Le Spectrum, Montreal, with with Lee Aaron. Uh, she, we, that was when we were on the always a rocker tour. So she was opening up for us. That was great. Um, Frank Marino, we did a unbelievable gig with him up in Quebec city. Wow. Uh, See, these are all people outdoors. I can reconnect you with. The, the, uh, Frank lives about 20 minutes from me. So, uh, the last time I went to his house, by the way, I'm, I'm going to tell this, <laughs> this story real quick. I, I'm at Frank Marino's house. And while I'm at Frank Marino's house, I have Brad Gillis and Joe Bonamassa texting me. So I'm I'm sitting with Frank, looking at my phone, going message from Joe, and I was like, "This is the weirdest <laughs> moment. Like it's like the three guitar gods, <laughs> all all at once." But yeah, but uh, Lee Lee is great. She's got a Christmas album coming out this year, which you should probably check out. Yeah. And uh, I can, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to reconnect you with all these guys. They're, they're all great people. But yeah, man, I, we love playing. You know, it's always great go up to Canada and play with these Rough Trade or uh, the Spoons and Teenage <laughs> yep. Head. All these bands that we didn't well, see as much. All down but our Teenage way. Head still exists. Rough Trade. Um, oh, what's her name? Um, uh, what's the lead singer of Rough Trade? Anyway, but all these bands still exist, and they still play, wow. except for Teenage wow. Edit. But I know the Spoons are still out there. I know Rough Trade's uh, still out there. Uh, Carol Pope. That's it, Carol Pope. Carol Pope, yep. Uh, Carol- are you familiar with a band called Rabbit, spelled with a W? W-R-A-B-I-T? No. They were from Toronto, I think. Really? did a couple... I think they were on MCA, the great label, too. Yeah, they played. They opened for us when we played in uh, Caracas, Venezuela, of all places. Um, and, yeah, I was just throwing it out there. Anybody out there remembers Rabbit? I remember them, too. So. Oh, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. The rock group Rabbit was formed in the late 70s. Members include Lou Nadeau, Les Paul House, David Alpin, John Albini, Scott Jefferson... Steck and Gary Craig and bassist Chris brought wow. There, band. There's like a band. the Looney Tunes Looney Tunes thing on the f- cover of one of their albums. You know the that's yeah. all folks. I'm looking things. at it. Uh Rough and Ready from nineteen eighty two has a sort of a crazy looking rabbit on it. Wow. All right, th- there you go. Yeah, yeah. So we yeah, we the the Venezuela going down to South America is a, a very interesting part of my diary and, and uh, our, our adventures with Rabbit. Um, right, you you taught a, me something. It says, it says keyboardist Lou Pamanti credits include working with Triumph, Four Horsemen, and Santers. Wow. Mm. They they shared a bill with Rush on a Canadian. Wow. 
Gary McCraggan left to go to Max Webster. Wow, this is like the who's who of Canadian. Uh, never heard of these guys. Wow. That's, that's yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I knew that they, I knew that they were were making some noise up there, and uh, my my friend from Kiel, uh, Mark Ferrari, was reading my book, and he got in touch with me. I can't believe you mentioned Rabbit. You know, I love those guys, and uh, I was like, yeah, uh, you're the first guy that's told me that you you remember them. But yeah, I had both their records. Wow. Wow, look at this. It so, says uh, it says Chris Broadwick on bass had been lured away from his band Rheingold that included Lawrence Gowan. And, of course, Gowan is, you know, now in Sticks. Wow. Wow. Yeah, six, they reminded, six degrees they of separation. Yeah, they reminded me a little of Sticks, uh, some of the tunes. Uh, interesting you say that. Uh, huh. Yeah, well, there's a lot of names like that in the book of these bands and venues and radio stations and people... Uh, that's part of the fun of the journal. It's not just the Boston scene or the Canadian scene. It's like, we, you know, we were all over the place with the project, and every place had had a scene. In some ways, they're very, you know, whether it's L.A. or Detroit, you know, there's certain things about it that are very similar from one to the next, but um, it's kind of fun because everybody that, that reads it tells me, I can't believe you mentioned, you know, whatever town or, or school, and for whatever reason, they can't believe it. Um it's it's got a lot of a lot of trivia in a it. A lot of great a lot of great trivia and what what's great is that it's a first person account. It's not something that you wrote twenty five years later. You wrote as it was happening. Right. So so it's yep. it's authentic and I and I'll have to say this as a compliment is I avoid a lot of the rock star book just because I'm like, dude you were fucking on heroin. How are you going to tell me what you were doing on an August night in the summer of 1984? Like, calm yourself. I mean, you know. But yours, you wrote it when you were there. So it's kind of easy to remember because it is what was in your head at that time. And so that that's what makes it authentic and that's what makes it a great read. So, uh, folks, uh, once a rocker, uh, com, And, of course, uh, head over to Amazon. The audiobook is available on Audible. And uh, there we go. As we say, um, as, as I slowly am losing my voice, I'm noticing. Uh, but as we say in Montreal, merci, Mr. Uh, Cowboy Mock Bell. Thank you. <laughs> merci beaucoup. Yeah, that, that was great, Mitch. I, I thought yeah. I would enjoy being on your show. And man, I, you did not disappoint. Ah, see, I, I, I do my best. But no, I, I'm a big fan of this. And I, and I really like... And I'll repeat it. I I like the fact that yours is authentic because every so often you get like you know you look at the Nikki Six's heroin diaries and you go, ah, how are you going to remember that? Or you get Ace Frehley's book and you go, dude, come on, you were not sober. Come on. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, I was a lightweight, and so I could write. Right. And I think that was one of the reasons they put me together with Joe too. They didn't want to get another uh, you know addictive type dude together with Joe. Joe had enough for the whole band, so you know I was uh, I was a lightweight, and and I think it it rubbed off in a good way on Joe and helped help keep him going, so he could have his fantastic rebirth with Aerosmith. Yeah, and and uh, give me some of the greatest moments of the uh, of the eighties that that permanent vacation album and. Oof. And, you know, Done With Mirrors, I, I remember specifically buying Done With Mirrors, sitting at a place called uh, Beaconsfield, uh, the small in Beaconsfield. There was a Sam, Sam the Record Man in there, and I bought the cassette, and I stuck it in my mom's car's tape player and drove all the way home, you know, 20 minutes away. And I just loved 
that dirty, gritty sound. I know everybody goes, oh, it's not a good album. It's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's that moment. It's the moment that matters. You know, it's not always the songs or the music. It's the moment. And we'll never forget that. Well, it doesn't, that. Have, the prom, doesn't have the prom ballads. I'll give you that. But if you like the Aerosmith with, that's driven by guitars of, of Joe Perry and Brad Whitford, and I mean, those my songs. My fist, your face. My fist, your face. That's all you need to know. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and what's the first song on the album? Let the Joe music, Perry projects. Let them go ahead. Let the music do the talking. And I remember seeing that dirty, slimy, fan-filled, vid, fan-filmed video, and it was perfect because that's what Aerosmith was supposed to be in 1984-85. Had they done a slick Michael Jackson video, it would have been a total failure. That eight millimeter camera video, perfect. I don't know who thought of that. Yep. Maybe Tim Collins, but perfect. Right. Yeah. And it fit their budget at the time, too. I mean, it all it all worked out. Um, and I love that album done with mirrors, too. And it, it marked the end of them really as, you know, a self-contained writing, performing machine after that. You know, but it wasn't just them. It was the whole industry started to. I heard that great episode you did with that uh, song doctor. I don't remember his name, a guy who worked with all kinds of acts. Well, I've Harrison done a couple of them. I've done uh, Jim Valance. I've done Desmond Child. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't either of them. It was somebody with, was, I didn't, he had worked with the Scorpions. He had worked uh, up in Vancouver. With, oh, yeah, Jim uh, Valance. Jim Valance. Who, uh, oh, okay, yeah. It's got to be Jim. Just trying to think okay. who it was. Uh, I've done right. Holly Knight, but she's not. She was never a song dog. No, it's got to be Jim Valance, where they would call him in and say, "Oh, oh hold on." Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, it was Jim Valance? Yeah. All right. I yeah, was, Jim Valance did uh, Crazy World with uh, with the Scorpions. Okay, yeah, it definitely was that one. Yeah, you know, I was just listening to. I just had your show on. It goes from one to the next to the next. I might have missed who I was even listening to. I was just going, whoever this dude is, this is a really good interview. Yep. Well, I'm. I'm and by the way, thank you for listening and and. Uh, that that is sort of the concept of the show is to go from, you know, a songwriter to to a book writer to and not just always be the the '80s hair guy and the '80s hair guy. And, oh, look, another '80s hair guy. That, and I think that's what makes it compelling. But uh, yeah, there you go. All right, great um, man. I am looking at hopefully. the time. It's time to pick up the daughter. Yeah. But uh, yes, hopefully what. Yeah, uh, no, I said hopefully they're listening to some hair guy and then it goes into my interview and they get to hear mine. But uh, hey, have a safe drive and thanks so much for having me on Rock Talk. I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. com. Yeah, and they, they will absolutely hear this. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, promote it properly over the socials. And I think once they hear the story, they're going to want to read the book because it's, it's a great, great, uh, it's a great read. And uh, here, I'm just going to quickly read here. Uh, it says, there's hundreds of stories. We'll be crossing paths with Alice Cooper, Marshall Tucker, Stiv, uh, Stiff Stavers, I guess it was. Uh, Stiff Baders. And the Ramones. The yeah, the Dead Boys. Did I interview? No, I didn't. No. Uh, who did I interview from the Dead Boys? Cheetah Chrome, maybe? Yes. Yes. That, Cheetah. Yeah. That's the name. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Great guy. <laughs> anyway, thank you, sir. Merci. Have a good day. Right on.